Good morning. It's good to be back with you. And uh, if you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 1 this morning. We're going to take a, a break in our uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount and do a sermon here from chapter 1. And uh, in the fall, and starting in the, after Labor Day in September, we are going to be doing a little series on the church. And then after that, we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount moving into Advent. So uh, that will be kind of the plan moving forward. But this morning, I want to share something uh, that God gave me just relatively very recently that I want to share with you from Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, which is a very familiar text. And that very familiar text says this, For I am not, what church? Ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone. And this sounds weird to us, but Jews and Gentiles. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone, for the Jew and the Gentile. And when we hear this passage, we, I don't know where your mind immediately goes, my mind used to immediately go to this idea of not being ashamed. Like, I'm not going to be a coward for Jesus. I'm going to stand up for Jesus in my workplace. I'm going to stand up for Jesus in my neighborhood. And I want you to know, that is what we should be doing, is standing up for Jesus. Yet, Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed. Paul, the opposite of not being ashamed is not being convinced. We could actually probably translate this a little bit more this way. Paul says, I am absolutely convinced that the power of God in the gospel is what saves me. And I, have to, I want to ask the question to us as a church. What power do you believe can actually save you? You might be thinking, well, Jesus... What else could there be? What I want to say to you is that there are all types of powers that we put our trust in for rescue, for salvation, that is not Jesus. And I want us to see this morning the centrality of Jesus. I want us to see the supremacy of Jesus over all things. Even in the Trinity, it says in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that God the Father has handed over everything to the Son so that right now He has preeminence. And one day when everything has been completed, He will then hand that kingdom back over to the Father. But in this time that we live in, the preeminence belongs to Jesus. And at one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to who? The Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And Paul is saying, this is the gospel. This is what I'm after, that I am absolutely convinced in who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and what Jesus is doing in the world. And I know in my own life, and I think it's true for all of us, is that we begin to lose confidence. We begin to lose faith in what Jesus has actually done for us. And we begin to slip into trusting other powers, whether those powers be 
fame or wealth or, or prestige or comforts. We begin to slip into these other realities to, to look for rescue and salvation. And Paul begins this whole major doctrinal treatise in Romans saying, we need to be convinced that there is only one person, one power that is actually going to save you. And Paul then says, it's the power of God for salvation. I think we need to have a bigger perspective on what salvation is. I think we often think of, of salvation as a past reality, right? When did you get saved? Like the good news of Jesus is what was the power that, that when I was not a follower of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the gospel came in and transformed my life, and that's the power that made me become a Christian. And so for us, salvation becomes like this past reality. When for Paul, salvation is a whole way of being. We could actually begin to, I think, understand Paul better by saying, I am absolutely convinced in the gospel. It is the power to be God-saved people. Not just to transform you from darkness into light, but after that transformation into darkness into light, it is the power that enables you to keep being in the light. There is a past, present, and future realities of salvation in which Jesus is given all the preeminence and all of our trust needs to be in Him. And all of our failures, all of our sin, all of our struggles are when we begin to lose our trust in who Jesus is. See, even after you're converted, the heart will continue to go back to operate on those religious principles of if I get this, I will be something. If I obey, I will be accepted. If I get money, I will be rescued. If I can have a child, my life will be better. We go back to all of these powers. And as Christians, we live in this deep, deep tension. How many of you believe Jesus is the Lord of your life? How many of you don't follow Him all the time? Isn't that the most annoying tension there is? How can that be? It's because there's two powers that are going on in your life. And Paul addresses these powers in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We, number one, are going to see that we already are saved from the penalty of sin. When we talk about salvation in the past, we're talking about being saved, being rescued from sin's penalty. We, we know later in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. We know that the payment we get for sin, like the paycheck you get for sinning every week, is death. That's the reward you get for sinning, is that you get to be separated from God's presence, not just in the future for all eternity, but right now in the present. You are separated, you're experiencing death, and that's what we were part of. 
And yet we have been set free from that tyranny. We have been set free from death into life. We've passed over, or John, or John says in John chapter 5, we've passed from death to life, or as Paul would say, we've come out of darkness and into light. We've been set free. So that sin and death no longer are your master. You are free from the penalty that sin incurs upon humanity. Which means that there are no sins right now keeping you from God. There are no sins that you have committed that God is surprised by that He is stiff-arming you and keeping you out of His presence from. This really means that for those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. None. You are completely and totally forgiven and you are fully loved. And that love and that forgiveness can never be taken from you. If you're in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, you cannot be separated from the love of God. There are some who think this message is too crazy, too radical, if you will, and lead people in a carefree lifestyle. Well, if God always loves me, and He always cares for me, and I'll always have grace, and I can go and do whatever I want. And I want you to know that if that's how you think, you've never experienced the grace of God. Because the grace of God does not give you freedom. In fact, Paul says in Titus that the grace of God leads you to repentance. Paul says that the grace of God has appeared and it teaches us to say no to the world and ungodliness. Titus 2. So the reality is this, is that when the grace of God appears to us, it never says, I can go and do whatever I want. The grace of God actually says, I am totally broken and yet completely loved, and that compels me to the love of God for, in Christ for me. This is the beauty of grace, that you get what you don't deserve. Because Jesus took all that you deserve, all of the death, all of the hell, all of the separation on the cross as He cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Paul says the way that the gospel operates, the power of the gospel frees you when you become a child of God from the penalty of all the sin that you've ever committed. But salvation is more than that. Salvation is not just a past event. It is a present reality. We are presently being saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that we are being saved. God is at work in you through His Holy Spirit, giving you the ability to overcome the power of sin. And so we right now, not only have been saved from the penalty of sin, but are being saved from the power of sin. There are certain core elements that are common to all major world religions. C.S. Lewis, in, in a book that he wrote, uh, highlights at the end that all the common moralities, all the common ethics that all of these religions of the world hold... And it's remarkable, in light of all this common behavior, all these common ethics... These similarities such as love your neighbor, live with justice and equity, be generous with your possessions, be kind to all. As you study all of the world religions, they're all going to hold up these 
general this general ethic. So if that's what the general ethic, the ethos of the world is, and further, we all agree with the problem, that the problem in this world is that we don't live up to those rules, those standards. If everyone obeyed what their religion taught them, then this world would be a different place, would it not? Okay, let's just bring it right here. Would Chesapeake be a different place if all the Christians and followers of Jesus lived up to the standard and ethic of Jesus? Would that be different? Let alone the entire world. And when everyone agrees what we should be doing, and everyone agrees that we're miserable because we don't do it, what do we say about that? We say that sin is a power. Sin is a power. Like, um, I don't mean to be light of this, but you ever told yourself, I will never do that again? Never will I do that again. And maybe you have really good spiritual fortitude and you make it a week. But why do we always, when we say, I will never do that again, why do we come back and usually find ourselves in that same place? Why do you find yourself there? Because sin's a power. It's not something you can just throw away and it's gone. It's an operating power over the world. And, and as Christians, we are moving out of that power into a new power. But that, that still infects us. That still is part of our daily life. If you don't think sin's a power, I use this test case a lot, but I, I really would encourage you to live out the golden rule this afternoon. And the golden rule is what? Do unto others as you want to do to them. No. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you, right? So, what I mean by that is, you know, treat your spouse, your kid, kids, with the same amount of energy and love and concern and meet all the needs of your kids the way that you want your spouse to meet all of your needs, all of your cares, and all of your concerns. And just let me know how long that goes before you're like, this is stupid. Before you can't do it. Why? Because sin's a power. There's an operative power over the world that we as humans, apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the power of the Gospel, are always stuck in this human condition of depravity. No matter the government in power. America is not a mess because there's a Democrat in power. America was not a mess because there is a Republican in power. America is a mess because of the power of sin. No matter what therapy, no matter what philosophy is out there, we all know what we should do. We all know the consequences of sin, and yet we do it anyways. And one of the most confounding things to the human condition is we know all of that, and we continue as a world to do it. You're a slave. Apart from Jesus, you're a slave to sin. 
You belong to the world, the evil one. You belong to the world that Adam was given and forfeited and handed over to Satan who is now the God of this age. And the God of this age is filling the world with His power and His evil and His tyranny. And the Gospel is the power that gets you out of that world into God's new world. Which Paul begins to... to, point at a little bit here, but he fleshes out later that the way that you grow in your Christian life, the way that you progress after you became a Christian by the power of the gospel, and the way that you now grow in what we would call that is the the, the path of transformation, of being transformed into the image of Jesus. How do you be transformed into the image of Jesus? I want you to know, church, it's the same way that you were saved from the penalty of sin. It's the same way that you're saved from the power of sin over your life and being transformed into the image of Jesus, which is this. You're saved by grace, through faith, and not by what? Works, right? Are we Protestants? I hope so. Okay? I mean, Protestant would believe that we're not saved by our good works, we're saved by Jesus' good works that we put our trust in, and we believe that, and so we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. But when people become Christians, we teach them that now to grow and to be transformed, you need to continue to believe, continue to have God's grace, but now you have to do what? Works. We teach them you got to go to church, you got to pray, you got to read your Bible, you got to give money, you got to go to here. And the more that you do these things, the more you will be like Jesus. But if you're honest with yourself, the more that you've done these things, the more you became a religious Pharisee. Right? That's my experience. That I was doing all of these things, put on a great show. Just like we're going to look at next week in the Lord's Prayer when, you know, there's these people praying in the synagogue with all of these great verbose words and praying on the street corner saying, look at me, I've done all of these things. And Paul is actually going to say, you know what, you are transformed. You are being saved. You are being transformed and saved into the image of Jesus by grace, through faith, and not by works. Paul says in Galatians, Oh, you foolish Galatians. When he says foolish, he's saying you have not thought through the implications. Of everything I'm just saying, Galatians 1 and 2, and what I've taught you, it's as if you haven't thought through the implications and someone has actually bewitched you, like they've cast a spell on you. He says, let me ask you, did you receive the Spirit, did you become a believer and have the Spirit of God in you by doing the works of the law, or did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? The rhetorical answer is what? How did you receive the Spirit? Through doing works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which one? Hearing with faith. Okay? Obviously, the implication is this. You became a follower of Jesus... And at the moment of your conversion, we're given the Spirit of God who came and resided within you, and you did that when you heard the message and you believed it. So then he says, are you so foolish? Again, have you not thought the implications? Having begun by the Spirit, do you think you're now going to be transformed by works? 
Paul's like, you haven't thought the implications. You don't understand what I'm teaching you. The idea is that you are transformed into the image of Jesus the same way you came into God's family, by grace, through faith, and not by works. Which means we're very much like the man that Jesus helped heal his daughter when he came to him and said to Jesus, I believe, but help my what? Unbelief. This means that to some degree, you and I are all, we all are in some degree unbelievers. Isn't that crazy? I'm, I'm calling you all unbelievers. You're like, you're a pastor, you should be nice. Okay, I'm an unbeliever. Because you know why? There's areas in my life that I don't truly and fully believe the gospel. And those are the areas and the pockets in my life where sin is continuing to dominate. And so if we're going to actually fight against that sin, we're going to fight against that sin by faith, not by works. We're going to fight the belief that produces the actions, not just do the actions and fight the actions while all underneath what we're trusting and believing in, which produces all of our actions. We're going to go right to the root, right to the heart, right to what we believe. We need to see what's going on underneath the sin. There's always a sin underneath the sin. I know this gets crazy, but if you don't want to... If you want to just keep picking the fruit off the tree, the bad fruit, you know, next week I'll never do that again, throw the food away. Don't you actually want to get to the real root of what's happening? Don't you want to see that your heart is putting trust in something other than Jesus, which is producing the bad fruits? See, underneath the sin of, of I don't, let's just pick the sin of, of lying. Okay, how many of you are not a liar, but just a person who lies. Okay? Some of you that way. How many of you are tempted, you know, just to like, just twist it a little bit to your spouse when they're like, did you do that? And you're like, yep, and you run and go do it right away. Anyone? No one? Okay? Like, there's always that little bit of like, tendency in us just to want to lie. You ever ask yourself, why, why are you afraid to tell your wife you didn't do it? See, people lie for different reasons. Like me, I'm going to lie because I want to keep my convenience and comfort. What do I mean by that? This is not true, but sort of true, and God's changed me in this. So just hold on a second, okay? When you ask me, hey, Scott, are you free this week? Nope. I'm not. I didn't even look at my calendar yet, but that's what immediately goes in mind. You know why? Because there's things in my life I want to get done this week, and I don't have time for you. Isn't that awful? I'm acknowledging that. But that, that's like my natural inclination is like, I'm going to lie because I want to keep my comforts. I want to do what I want to do. Other people lie because... They don't want anyone to look down on them and be, have disapproval, right? Like, you lie to other people to make sure that they don't be like, oh my goodness, I don't, you, you're like that for real? You're that jacked up? And so you're afraid of other people's opinions and approval on you, and so you lie to keep your approval in a sense right there. 
Does that make sense why people lie? Like there's very different reasons why you lie. And you can't just say, I'm going to stop lying. No, you've got to actually go to the root and say, why am I actually a person who is continually tempted to twist the truth? It's because you don't believe, the approval side, that in Jesus, you already have all the approval of the only person who ever matters. If you believe that you already have all the approval of the only person who ever really matters, then you would be free to tell the truth to everyone all the time, regardless what they think of you. And that's a matter of faith, where you're putting your trust to be rescued, in other people's opinions of you, or the God of the Father of this universe who sent His Son and has said, you are approved. You want to fight your sin. You want to be transformed into the image of Jesus. You need to actually begin to locate deep underneath what is happening in your heart. And the only way to dispossess the heart of a, of a wrong affection, the only way to di- get rid of that, that approval issue that you have is with the power of a new one. With a new affection. Let's just look at, this is again just categorical, okay, just... Just agree with me, and I know you're like, there's always going to be the exception, okay? But, you know, the normal Christian, sorry, no, no. The normal American life is what? You grow up, you go to high school. Once you're in high school, you begin to do what? Party. You go to college, it's your four-year party. You come out of college, and you're like, why did I just party for $150,000 worth of debt? And so, then you begin to do what? You loved partying. But between the ages of 25 to 50, yes, sure, there are still full-time partiers, but are most 25 to 50-year-olds full-time partiers? Is that because they stopped liking to party? Why? Why did they change? Because a new affection has gravitated their heart that is more important to them than actually partying. You know what that new affection is? Money. And so the quest for money begins to push out the need. They still party, but that that new love of money is now what they live for. And if you're lucky enough to get lots of money, then guess what you need to have? Power. So the American life just goes from fun to money to power, and then you die, right? I'm not trying to be mean, just... That is the general consensus. And every time you made a change from fun to money to power, there is a new affection that captured your heart that drove all those other affections away. The same thing with the good news of Jesus is that the gospel is the only affection, the only power that can actually conquer all the other affections and is itself unconquerable. What I mean by that is once you've actually tasted of the good news of Jesus and you've tasted the presence of God in your life, there is nothing greater than that. Sure, we're dumb, we're blind, we forget it, we run to other things, and repentance is when we actually come back and say, no, the beauty of God for us in Jesus is what is all-consuming. That is the greatest affection. Christians are not people who don't sin. Christians are sinners. 
They're people who recognize that they need God's grace to keep and to forgive them. Like, this isn't just an idea. This is how Paul regularly speaks to all of his churches. And I have a bunch of these. I'm just going to do one of them for you for the sake of time. Generosity. Why are we not generous people? So, I don't know about you, but if, you know, you see someone on the side of the road and they ask you for money, and in your pocket you have a one, a ten, and a hundred, right? Which one are you going to give them? Me, personally, I don't know what, my mind would be like, you know what, one, the one dollar bill is, that's like, come on, one dollar, you're going to give this guy one dollar? But then the hundred is kind of like what? That's too much to give him. And so you fall with, I would fall with it, you know, naturally. Just, here's ten bucks. Anyone else with me on that, or is that just me? Like, you don't want to be a cheapskate, but you don't think this guy's worth a hundred bucks, and so you just give him the ten. What's going on in my heart if you do that? See, Paul is taking up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem in the city of Corinth. And when he writes to Corinth, he's telling these people that they should be generous people. God loves a cheerful, generous giver. And Paul could have, as I jokingly say, whipped out his capital A business card and said, I'm the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now give this percentage of your money to these poor saints in Jerusalem. Could he have done that? I mean, as the apostle Paul, he probably could have walked into town and been like, Everyone hand over 20% of your money. It's going to those saints. But Paul actually says, I'm not going to actually force you to give. I'm not even going to command you to give. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to remind you of the good news of Jesus. That you know the grace for our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, and probably monetarily rich, though he was rich, he became poor for your sake. For what reason? You know the rest of that verse? You know, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become what? Rich. Paul's saying, here's the gospel. In Jesus, you have all the riches of the universe. You're going to share in all the inheritance that God is giving to the Son, which is the new world. And that is our inheritance. There is nothing God is keeping from you. You have everything. And if you believe you have everything in Jesus, that frees your heart to be a generous giver. You know why you're not a generous giver? Because you don't believe in the riches that God has offered you in the person of Jesus. See, Paul is saying if we're going to be transformed into the image of Jesus as the one who through great poverty gives away his entire life, if we're going to be like him, it's going to come to we need to come to see and believe in what we have through him. So Paul does this throughout all of his writings. He doesn't often just say be kind. Like how many of you parents just tell your kids be kind, be kind, be kind, be kind. Does Paul tell the church be kind? He certainly does, but does he tell you why? This is always a fun one. Anyone know the rest of that verse? Be kind, tender-hearted, compassionate to one another, 
even as God in Christ has what? Forgiven you. To the degree that you believe in the forgiveness and the compassion and the tenderheartedness of God to you will be the degree to which you share that with others. The more that you believe and put your trust in the kindness of God in Jesus, the more will be transformed into the image of Jesus. So we learn that because we're saved by grace through faith and not by works, we're transformed into the image of Jesus by grace through faith and not by works. So what role does works have? Do I have to do any good works? Yes. And good works has several different roles in the life of the Christian. But let me just give you one for the sake of this sermon and time. The role of good works, the role of your prayer, the role of your Bible study, the role of coming to church gatherings, the role of meeting with God's people in your missional community, the role of meeting the needs of those people in your community who don't have things, the role of doing all of these works is not to say I'm a good Christian. It's not to say I've done things. We pray so that we would have faith. To come to experience God's presence and believe Him more. And we read the Bible. Why? Not so we know more and can win a debate on, on Facebook. We read the Bible because we want to have faith. And have our faith nurtured and sustained and growing. Not as an identity marker that I've read my Bible every day and I know it. We read it to have faith. Why do we fast? To put our dependence on God to show our, to have our faith grown and nurtured. Like all of these works are means to faith. They are not the end, they are means to experience God, to know God, to have our faith in Him sustains. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. For it is the power to be God's saved people, to come into the Christian family, to live in the Christian family. We need to have the power of the gospel by faith alone change us. But there's good news too. Our salvation is not only past and present, but there's a future reality to our salvation. And, and I think most of the time when I tell this to people, because it utterly shocked me, it's utterly shocking to find out that when you read the New Testament, over 80% of the references to salvation are future. 99% of our understanding of salvation is all past. Does that make sense? And yet Paul is the exact, New Testament said, the exact opposite spin on salvation. That the primary way they speak of salvation is a future reality. Paul says in Romans, the day of our salvation is closer now than when? When we first believed. He talks about salvation being this future event. Or as Peter will say, we, by God's power, are being shielded and protected through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. See, ultimately, our salvation is a final and future reality. So we'd say that we're saved from the penalty of sin, we're being saved from the power of sin, and one day we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. 
One day, everything sad will come untrue. One day, our fight will be over. One day, the tension of struggling to, to follow Jesus and have all of these other desires and all these powers and other trusts that we put in will be relinquished from our life. One day, our eyes will see Jesus in the fullness of God, in the Father, Son, and Spirit. Come and dwell with us on a new world. One day... Salvation is not us going up to be with God. The Bible presents salvation as God coming down to be with us. And the fullness of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the presence of God will fill that world with love and life in a way that you and I will never even understand what it is till we get there. And I don't know how it can be. How many of you long for a world where you're done with trying to run the race and you're done with trying to like prove yourself and you're done with trying to navigate relationships and you're done with why is everything so hard? We long for that world where everything in a sense is going to be easy. It's just going to be love. You're going to love perfectly and other people are going to love you perfectly. Isn't that crazy? And that's why it's so hard to believe because we've never experienced anything even close to it. And yet this was the future promise of the gospel. The power of Jesus is that one day that world is actually coming to us. And that is what we put our hope in, is that God is going to come and dwell with us. And so though you and I have not seen Jesus, we love Him. Though you and I do not see Him right now. We believe in Him and we have a joy that is inexpressible. And we are presently obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. See, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm absolutely convinced that the gospel is what saved you, what is saving you, and one day is going to finally and completely save us. And in all of that, from past, present, to future, who is the primary agent who we put our trust in and look to and follow? It is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He continues to take that main action. He continues to be the main character. It's not him, then us, then him. He saved us. He's the main character. Now it's us, the main character, doing all the work. And one day he'll come back and he'll be the main character. No, he's the main character from beginning to end. The one that we look to. The one that we're constantly trying to know and to experience and to live out our lives together for. Are you convinced of this good news? Are you convinced... That there's only one person, one power that can truly save you. Father, thank you for a few minutes just to think through what it means that the gospel is the power of God for our salvation. And I pray you help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who deeply loves us and wants to be with us. The one who gave himself for us. The one who is sending his spirit to continually show us his greatness, his excellence.
so Jesus, we thank you for this good news, that you've made it known to us and help us to repent of our self-righteousness and help us to repent of our pride. Also help us to repent of our, our shame, that we live in the shame that we don't believe this is actually true. Help us to live in confidence that Jesus, you are who you say you are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.